Continuing Education credits for physicians and other healthcare professionals is provided by VCU Healthcare Continuing Education. Check out cribsiders.vcuhealth.org for more information. The Cribsiders podcast is for entertainment, education, and informational purposes only. The views and statements expressed on this podcast are solely those of the host. Welcome back to the Cribsiders. Hey, what's up? <laughs> There's that energy. I am Justin Burt, joined tonight by Dr. Chris the Chew Manchu and our wonderful producer, Dr. Shannon Snellgrove. Shannon, how's it going? It is going good. Intern year, winding down. Uh, how's winding it? Down. How you? How you living? How am I living? <laughs> how are you living? Yeah, <laughs> living. yeah that's that's <laughs> what the that's what the Pete's patient. That's what the youths. That's how, how they, they say, say hi now. That's how, how, that's how they say it. <laughs> Yeah, I'm. I don't even know how to answer that question. Um, I'm living. I'm. Uh, you know, Those are my it comes in waves. Interviewing skills, everyone. It comes in waves. You know, sometimes you know, I'm thriving an intern year. Sometimes I'm definitely not. Like cried in the bathroom last week, but it's okay. That, you know, who I doesn't that cry in more, the bathroom? That's more common occurrence than thriving an intern. If you're having days of thriving as an intern. That is uh, remarkable in and of itself, and I oh, yeah. I have no doubt that you are consistently thriving, Shannon. And even as soon to be thriving as a senior. Year. That's right. That's right. Scary um, thing to say. Uh, we also today have our producer uh, Sydney Engel producing her first episode. Yay. Sydney, welcome to the show. Woo. Thanks so much. Happy to be here. Uh, we are very excited to have you. Um, tell us a little bit about yourself. Introduce yourself to our listeners. Sure. Um, So I am a family nurse practitioner working at a community health center in central Massachusetts, which I love. I work with both peds and adults, but a very large peds population, many of whom are coming from outside of the country, which creates for some really interesting cultural experiences, linguistic experiences. It's been very eye-opening to be in that setting. Amazing. Well, and we are very uh, lucky to have you join our team. We appreciate all your work. You put together a great episode for us tonight. Our guest tonight, Dr. Christopher Haynes, is here to discuss the autism spectrum disorder. But before we dive into the content, Chris, tell us about the show. Yes, I'm the other Chris in the episode today. We are the Pediatric Medicine Podcast. We interview leading experts in the fields to bring you clinical pearls, practice changing knowledge, and answer lingering questions about core topics in pediatric medicine. We have a fantastic conversation with our guest, Dr. Christopher Hanks, who is a med-peds trained physician practicing at The Ohio State University Wexner Medical Center, where he specializes in caring for adult patients on the autism spectrum. In this episode, Dr. Hanks teaches us about the high prevalence of AFD, one in 44, a deep dive on screeners and common comorbidities to look for, as well as implications for patient safety. I think our listeners are going to enjoy the spectrum of our conversation tonight. Mm. <laughs> uh, not the best, but we'll we'll use it. <laughs> Dr. Haynes, welcome to the Cribsiders. Thank you for coming on to the show. We are so excited to have you. Welcome, welcome to the party. Well, thank you. I'm happy to be here. <laughs> this is going to be a great episode, I can already tell. But before we dive into some content, uh, we would love to get to know you a little bit better. Our audience would love to get to know you a little bit better. Can you describe yourself? Give us a one-liner. Tell us a little bit about yourself and maybe something you enjoy outside of medicine. Sure. So um, describing myself is always hard, but um, I'm a primary care internal medicine pediatrics physician, husband, father of six kids. Yes, six And in my free time, I enjoy cycling, hiking, backpacking, rock climbing, all things that involve mountains, but I live in the flatlands. So, uh, (laughs) you, so you have your hands full. How, what are, what are the ages of your, your kids? If I don't, if you want me. Uh, no, my oldest is 18, then 17, then 14, then 11, then seven, then four. Nice. That seems like a nice kind of spaced out. uh, Yeah. It's uh, it's really easy when you space it out that way. Yeah. Definitely the way to do it. <laughs> so, yeah. so Chris, I, I actually sort of know you already a little bit. And actually, I'm going to deviate my question a little bit because I, I want to know a little bit more about – I want our audience listeners to know a little bit more about you. So you run this thing called the CAST Clinic. Do you mind explaining a little bit about what that is? Sure. So CAST stands for the Center for Autism Services and Transition. And we all like to make you know cute acronyms with anything we make. So that's what that is. Um, 
Essentially, it's a primary care-based program focused on uh, improving care for adults with autism as they transition out of pediatric settings. And so we started this up back in 2014 and have cared for over a thousand patients with autism autism at this point. And, you know, I didn't come into this as someone who knew a lot about autism, but I've learned a lot along the way. And I guess that's why I'm here. So. <laughs> definitely... How did you get into that? Like, how did it oh, come about? Boy. Um, so the short story is coming out of residency, I was looking to build some sort of program focused on, you know, complex patients transitioning out of pediatric care into adult care and um, was lucky enough to get some funding through a private donor in our area to start up a program focused on autism. And so that's where my time went. And uh, it's been a great, I mean, it's, you know, it's, it's not something I necessarily set out to do, but it's it's been a pretty enjoyable experience and I've learned a lot and uh, it keeps bringing new stuff all the time. So, you know. And I feel like it's such a great med peds topic too that transitions is always important and challenging but especially with this type of underlying disorder i think all the more reason a med peds person can, I think, can really help kind of facilitate that transition yeah i mean i you know there's so many conditions that they're looking we're looking at that transition process with and you know this was this is one that doesn't really have a, a landing point in the adult world right now and so it was a i don't know if easy is the right word Pretty good opportunity. <laughs> good. Uh, the right fit, the right calling at the right time, I believe. Yeah. I We've believe gotten it. a lot of um, suggestions for transition episodes. So definitely be on the lookout, Cripsiders listeners, okay. for that in the upcoming future, I, I assume. <laughs> Most definitely. And then how about one more question before we dive into some content? Um, can you share uh, maybe a favorite piece of advice that you've received from a learner or or a favorite failure of something that taught you in your career that you think others should should learn from? Sure. Um, I think I'm going to go with, I guess, favorite advice. You know, when I, early on in my, this is actually going back to kind of undergrad times, but I was involved with some organizations and trying to do some things. And, and someone once took me aside that was, in a, you know, he was probably just a couple of years older than me, but in a leadership position above me and kind of pulled me inside and said, boy, you're just so judgmental and, you know, rude to people, which was probably true. Uh, and, and he went on to talk to me about how I really needed to recognize that, you know, just because people aren't doing what I want them to doesn't mean they're not trying to become better people. And really to look at, you know, not just where they are now, but, but where are they going? And that's been really meaningful to me in my life, especially in medicine, where so often we see people in some of their worst moments uh, to be able to pause and say, all right, you know, but are they really trying to make themselves better and, and look for those places where they're making themselves better? Because then they start to recognize that you care about them as a person. Um, and that, that's been really meaningful to me. And I think it was very brave of this person who, you know, like I said, was probably just two years older than me or something, you know, a, a peer essentially to take me aside and kind of say, look, your approach to people is wrong in a way that was constructive, not just, hey, you're a jerk. So, <laughs> Yeah. That's nice to get that feedback. I mean, it, it, I'm sure it hurts and it's harmful or it, it, you know, not harmful, but it, it's hurtful to sometimes hear that feedback. But I feel like it's so important to have that critical feedback. And sometimes in medicine, I think the feedback sessions are always so much like, oh, yeah, no, you're really great. No, yeah, you just keep reading. Um, and I feel like <laughs> you're well on your way. <laughs> you're well on your way. And, and I feel like even now as as like an attending, sometimes it's easy if there's a med student who is like exceeding expectations to get really excited and be like, oh, this is great. And forgetting that the ones that are struggling like aren't not to say they would be assumed that they're bad people, but, you know, like the ones that are struggling are uh, uh ones that need support and should also be excited about. And I think it's important to remind um, teachers of that, or I remind myself yeah. of that sometimes too. Definitely. The frustration should not be taken out on them. Anyway, uh, before we uh, just go deep dive into Justin's deficiencies as a, as a teacher and mentor, I think <laughs> we should switch over to dive into some content. Uh, Shannon, what do you say? Absolutely. I think that sounds like a great plan. Yeah. So we got a case from Cashlack Children's. We have a 30-month-year-old male who presents to our clinic. Um, he is has recently immigrated to the U.S. with his family, and he's coming to your primary care office for a new patient visit with his primary caregiver. When you ask about concerns, the caregiver tells you, quote, he doesn't really talk at much at all. They explain that he uses about five words, but communicates primarily through pointing he usually responds appropriately to directions, such as when to bring into the caregiver. Throughout the visit, you notice that Andres is wandering around the exam room, trying to open different drawers, and resists standing or sitting still for the physical exam. So whenever you kind of hear a case like that, what are the first things that are kind of going through your mind? 
Well, sure. I mean, you know, obviously, I think any pediatrician, especially in primary care, experiences this kind of stuff pretty regularly. And whether it's as many concerns as, as are outlined in that case, or whether it's more subtle, I think the question is always, is this typical or is this, you know, outside of our typical range? And it can be very difficult to tell. You know, I think we have all these screeners we use and different things like that. But sometimes when you're faced with a patient in front of you, it's hard to make sense of, you know, does this really matter? And, and how, is this really, you know, disabling? Or is this just kind of a variant of development that's going to become more typical as time goes on? So generally, it comes down to, you know, boy, we got to explore this more for the short answer. <laughs> and so for maybe for a patient like this, where there might be some speech delay, but again, to your point, we see that a lot. Um, they do seem to respond. So maybe we're not as concerned about hearing. When do you start thinking about some type of autism spectrum disorder? What are questions that you might ask or what are red flags or things that really do start making you think this this is problematic? Yeah, sure. So I think first of all, before we jump into that, I think the first thing that I, you know, I always think about is, you know, you don't need a diagnosis to start treatment for some of these, you know, situations, right? So if a person has a child has a speech delay, there's no reason to wait for a confirmed diagnosis to get them involved with early intervention or speech therapy. If they have some other challenge, there's no reason to delay intervention while we figure out, is this something I should worry about or not? I don't think you're ever going to be, feel bad if you referred to some, someone to speech therapy and six months to a year, year later, their parents say, you know what, we don't think we really needed that. But you might feel bad if you say, wow, I wish I would have referred them, but man, look where they are now. So don't delay treatment while we work on diagnosis, especially because often in many locations, there's a delay till you can get evaluation. You know, the reality is the access is not great. Um, but going back to your original question of, you know, what do you do next? Like I said, for, you know, first it's, it's collecting more information. Um, and I think as you collect that information, you have to recognize that not every patient with autism you know, is going to line up their toys and avoid eye contact and flap their hands and walk on their toes and all the things that you you might have been told, you know, someone with autism does. Uh, some will, but some won't. And not every patient with autism is going to be diagnosed before they're three, which is kind of the goal and ideal. The reality is many will have enough findings at that point to be diagnosed, but some you know, even if they go through a good thorough evaluation by, you know, an expert in the diagnostic process, they might say, you know what, we want to reevaluate you in a year or two and kind of see how things trend. Um, so now I don't remember what the original question was, but. <laughs> no, I think that's good. And, and, you know, kind of what to look for. And, and maybe even to your point, taking a step back and saying, clearly, this is an episode about autism spectrum disorder. And you, you talk about some of the, you know, lining up blots, avoiding eye contact, flapping hand things that are the commons. But can you introduce us to autism spectrum disorder? How do you explain this diagnosis to, to caregivers and, and kind of, you know, set the framework of, of what the actual yeah. definition might be? So. Definition, I've thought a lot about how to define this in a way that's not so painfully wordy, because if you look at the DSM-5, which is where the definition comes from, it's a two-page long definition. I'm not going to give you that. So autism spectrum disorder is a biologically based condition, and I think it's important to recognize that, that it's biologically based. Uh, it's complex, it's lifelong, and it's a neurodevelopmental condition that's marked by, the DSM-4 likes to say deficits on social communication and interaction, and then repetitive or restrictive patterns of behavior, interests, or activities. Now, I pause on the deficits part because when we get into the conversation, which I think we'll get into a little bit later, many would argue that you know some of these things may not be deficits, but just you know alternate presentations or impacts. You know, but recognize that really it's characterized by developmental delay in many cases. Difficulties with social communication interaction, so difficulties interacting in a typical way with peers or, or others around them, and then repetitive or restrictive patterns of interest, behaviors, things like that. So that's how it's you know defined. That's a lot of information to take in, and like I said, you can you can dive into each of those you know in a lot of detail. But when you go back to our case with someone who's having you know difficulty with speech, you know having some tantrums and things like that. And maybe not engaging the right way. Those those are ways that you might highlight this patient's you know impacts of you know social interaction and communication. Additionally, I think it's important to realize that although by definition the signs and symptoms of this need to be present in early childhood, it may not become obvious until later in childhood or adolescence or adulthood. And so there are plenty of people, especially now, 
that are being diagnosed in you know later in life. And so so we we shouldn't just assume that because it wasn't obvious when they were you know two years old that they cannot or do not have autism. Now you you tell you told us that you know this this definition this definition of DSM five is like two pages long, which I can only assume means that there's a lot of different parts to it, which I assume that means it may overlap with many other types of things that w- should be on our differential. What what are those types of things that we need to be aware of, and especially as we're trying to get more data, that we need to be more specific about clarifying with parents as as we try to figure out our differential. <laughs> I think there's a, you know, the reality is the diagnosis of autism is so incredibly broad that it can overlap with a million different things, you know, in one way or another. I think the most common ones would be certainly learning disabilities, you know, speech apraxias, intellectual disability of, of a variety, you know, variety of different causes. We see a lot of overlap with specific diagnoses. And, you know, when we talk about genetics later, we can dive into that more, but things like fragile X, or it's actually higher case rates in Down syndrome and other, you know, well-known developmental disabilities, but also things like ADHD and anxiety and OCD and, and some of these things can really manifest with similar symptoms in a lot of ways, as can normal developing children. You know, you, you think about, you know, I always, when I look at that, diagnostic criteria. I think about some of my own children or some of the kids I've taken care of. And, you, you know, a lot of toddlers have obsessions about certain topics. I mean, how many toddlers are obsessed about dinosaurs or about space or astronauts or whatever? And so differentiating the kid that is really into black holes, my son, from the kid that's really into black holes and has autism can be really difficult. And so you're really looking for a variety of things. And, and that's why, you know, we have screeners and we'll talk about those in a minute, but also just watching the child and the way they interact with you, the way they interact with their, their family and exploring with the parents, how do they interact with their peers? You know, what's happening in, in the comfortable environments? Because many kids in this age range don't actually perform at their best in a doctor's office where we keep putting needles in their legs. <laughs> and so that, you know, when they're clinging to their parents' legs and crying and, and don't want you near them, that that can make the evaluation even harder. So one other question I have is going back to the actual name of autism spectrum disorder. So, I mean, is everything within autism spectrum disorder, do we just call everything ASD or do we say someone's more like severe ASD or do we just call it straight autism or, and I know there's been like the, you know, pervasive development disorders and like Mm -hmm. there's other things like Asperger's and I get really confused with all that. Is there some (laughs) history to this? Um, are you able there's to explain a, that a little more? Yeah, I mean, there's a lot of history to this. Um, I'm going to trim it down. So historically, if you go back to the dsm 4 um, there were multiple pervasive developmental disorders, including autism spectrum disorder, PDD-NOS, and Asperger's syndrome. In the most recent iteration, the dsm 5 those were all kind of combined together into one diagnosis of autism spectrum disorder. So anyone that's diagnosed with autism is within the category of autism spectrum disorder. If we're honest about that, everyone that, you know, thinks about this knows that this is not one single condition. This is a spectrum of presentations that are pro- that have many different causes and that have a definition that we've defined. Going to, you know, so so what you know, that being said, there are people that are very attached to some of those languages. There are plenty of my patients that refer to themselves as having Asperger's or being Aspies or whatever it may be. Their diagnosis, you know, they, who they were didn't change when we changed how we define this. On top of that comes the complexity of how we talk about this. And, and I'm always cautious when I start talking about autism, you know, about what language I use. Because the reality is there's, there's not one right answer for this. You will find many people that will say, use person-first language, you know, a person with autism. And particularly, we see that coming more from, although not entirely from, you know, parents and, and advocates that are advocating for individuals on the spectrum. We also see very clear evidence when, you know, you start talking to people on the spectrum themselves that many of them would prefer to be defined as autistic, not a person with autism. And so, you know, there's not one way to refer to this entire group when you're talking about a certain person to make them all happy. So, so number one is I would say, if you're in, encountering a person on the autism spectrum, recognizing that they may have a preference for how they're referred to. Most importantly, they'd prefer to be referred to probably by their name and recognized as an individual. But that as I talk about this, or when you write about it, if you're reading you know, stuff, you'll see people referred to as autistic. You'll see people referred to as a person with autism and many other iterations of this. I will probably mostly defer during this talk to 
um, saying a person on the autism spectrum, because that's kind of the middle ground safe space. Um, but even that, I think some people would take issue with. So um, you'll hear me probably use a few different terminologies over time. Long answer to... Uh, <laughs> no, that's helpful. That's that really helpful, better. I think. Yeah. yeah. Um, and I think, let me, let me add to that, actually, because I think I think the reality is this is this kind of segues into a really important conversation about autism and developmental disability in general. Historically, you know, you go back to where do all these names of autism come from, right? Autism and Asperger's and, and so forth. You know, Asperger's is named after someone, named last name Asperger. Autism was initially defined by a different person, but autism was originally defined in a medical model, meaning that it was it was very much focused on defining autism as the individual and their impairment and what kind of remediation do they need, right? And thus, going back to when I was talking about the definition, the word deficit being part of the diagnostic criteria. We are defining this population as people that are deficient in something. There's a lot of people on the autism spectrum that take issue with that and say, look, you know, I don't communicate the same way you do, maybe, but I'm perfectly able to function if society would provide me reasonable accommodations. And so, you know, the social model of disability is really important to recognize that societal environmental barriers are a huge part of this population's life. And a lot of what, you know, when we go back to the CAST program that I'm involved in, a lot of what we've done to improve patient's care is really identify those barriers and find ways to overcome them. There aren't a lot of treatments for autism, but there are a lot of ways we can make autism more manageable. And there's a lot of ways we can make people enjoy their lives and experience their lives much better. I, I think this is great. And I think it's important to how to have that conversation before even, you know, kind of diving in. And so this is very helpful and uh, the appropriate terminology to go back a little bit to, you know, what we had talked about as far as identifying individuals early, you had kind of mentioned trying to identify before age three. What are the ages that you often start screening for individuals for uh, autism? And what are those screening tools actually asking? Sure. So I think first, before we talk about the screening tools we use, it's important to recognize the prevalence of this condition. The CDC on the current data suggests one in 44 children are diagnosed with autism. That's 2.3%. That's a big number, right? Now, that's children by age eight is where they get their data from, and that's in the United States. If we compare that to some other conditions that we all know quite a bit, Down syndrome is one in 700, but we all know all about Down syndrome, right? So autism is more than 10 times as common as that, but we all seem a little uncomfortable with autism because it's less well-defined, you know? I could go on and on, but, you know, so, so this is a very common condition. So clearly we should be understanding it and screening for it. So what are our current recommendations? Currently, most groups in the United States recommend general developmental screening at ages 9, 18, and 30, and then autism-specific screenings at ages 18 months and 24 months. Sorry, those were months on the previous one, too. 9, 18, and 30 months. We got you. <laughs> not, not age, <laughs> not years. Got to be clear about what I'm saying here. Um, the most commonly used screening tool for autism here in the United States and in many other countries is the MCHAT or MCHAT-R that you pro many of you are probably familiar with. It's a pretty good screening tool. Its sensitivity is about 85%, which isn't too bad. Its specificity is 99% when used properly. But that does mean that using that screening, we're going to miss 15% of people on the spectrum, right? So it's, it's not a perfect tool, but it's a pretty good tool. Really beyond those ages, there are no specific recommendations for should we be screening, when should we be screening, or how should we be screening? But as I said before, we clearly shouldn't just sign off and say, oh, I did, I did my MCHATs, you know, they were fine. You don't have autism for the rest of your life. That, you know, may not be true. So yeah, as I'm going to talk a bit about the MCHAT just because I think many people use it and, and some people are less familiar with how it should be used. The MCHAT R or MCHAT RF, which is the most recent version, the revised version, is aimed at 16 to 30 month old children. It's available in a lot of different languages. So if you know, you may, you probably, you know, most of us have an uh, English version in our office, but it's very easy to get a hold of a lang you know, a language specific version for patients you have. You know, essentially it's a, uh, I think it's 18 questions if I remember right. Very quick for parents to fill out and it's scored very simply. If you have zero to two that are in the abnormal category, that's low risk. Most children will score that way. You don't need to do anything more. If they have above 8, eight so 8 to 20, so it must have been 20, I'm sorry, not 18, 8 to 20 high-risk you know, scores, then, then that's, that's a high-risk score, and you should clearly refer that. And that's going to be about 1% of children that do it. And then the middle ground is the 3 to 7 you know, abnormal scores, uh, and those are considered medium risk. And these are what the follow-up questions are for. So when you look at the MCHAT, it's got the, the single-page screener, and then it's got multiple pages 
that if you don't have on hand with you, you can pull off online anytime you want to, that essentially go through the ones that the parents scored as abnormal and ask more questions, have follow-up questions to it to clarify and see if it still stays in the abnormal range or not. Um, and so in those, in those in that medium risk range, you should do the follow-up questions, which may take an extra 10 minutes or so, but as a reasonable intervention for a child that you're trying to figure out. And then based on the scores from that, you can decide whether you should refer them for further evaluation or not. Questions on that? Yeah. Also for clarification on the original MCHAT that the, the first one you do, it's not all of the questions, the yes and no, it's not like all of them should be yes or all of them should correct. be no, correct? Right. So there are, I should, should have it in front of me, but there, the, I think all but three of them are yes. And the other three are no, if I've got it right in my head. Right, yeah. um, so, so there's three that are in the other side. Yes. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, and anyone that's using this regularly should be pretty comfortable with that part. It's the follow-up part that gets confusing because you don't do it very often, honestly. Most of the time it's normal, normal, normal. Every once in a while, it's really abnormal. And those are clear, but the ones in the middle range those follow-up questions can be really helpful, you know, and, and honestly, if you're like, boy, I don't have time for this, print it off and give it to the parents and say, hey, look through those questions and bring them back to me tomorrow, you know, find a way to get it done. Because if you can, you know, it's going to help guide you easily to should I refer this patient or not. Because, you know, I think going back to what we said before, there are long wait times for in a lot of, you know, clinics for getting a diagnostic evaluation. And if pediatricians can do a good job of screening, we can send them only the appropriate ones and 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 hopefully decrease wait times. Now, Chris, when, when I you like to use tools for screening in, in my clinic, I sort of like to understand the tools a little better. And, you know, I also want to know, like, what are the main weaknesses of a tool? So when it comes to the MCHAT-R, like, what are the main deficiencies? Like, why do we miss some people? And ter- why isn't it a perfect screener? Like, sure. are there differences with culturals? Like, so our patient here is, is, is someone who um, is immigrated to the U.S. So are there cultural differences they may miss? Are there other things from other cultures? Or, you know, when we're looking at um, the ways, when we're looking at um, some social determinants may also affect maybe some of these questions. What are we seeing here and what do we need to be aware of when using this tool? So I think it's a great question. You know, as I said previously, I think not all autism presents really obviously early on. And so parents may, you know, some of these things may be quite subtle and may not manifest until a child is put in more, you know, socially challenging environments or or things like that. And so, so some of the reason it's not a perfect tool is because truly it's unrealistic to expect we would diagnose all autism by 30 months of age, you know, we, our goal should be as many as possible in that. And I don't want to minimize the importance of screening. It is really important. Um, but not everyone is going to be diagnosed at that age. And I think that's a lot of where that's, you know, that comes from. When you look at the questions, you know, as with any screening tool, the goal is to build a, a sensitive tool that's going to pick up as many as possible. You know, and we'd rather refer a few extra than miss, right? And so it's, you know, when you look through the questions, you know, some of the things, you know, there's a question about, does your child get upset by everyday noises like the vacuum? A lot of kids get upset by the vacuum, right? You know, so, so is that an autism-specific problem? Not necessarily, but that along with other things is how we get to a positive screen. So, yeah, on top of that, I think that also segues a little bit into the conversation of, you know, we know that autism is, you know, if you look at current numbers, about 75 to 80% of people with autism that are diagnosed are male, we do not believe that that's an accurate representation of the actual prevalence of autism in our uh, society, and we believe that we're underdiagnosing females. Additionally, we very clearly have evidence that diagnostic, you know, the, the prevalence rates in low socioeconomic status and you know certain racial and ethnic backgrounds are lower than in the the majority white Caucasian population we have here in the United States. And so we're clearly missing diagnosis in that population too. And 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 we think there's a lot of factors in that. It, it is not well-defined right now, you know, why, you know, there's questions about whether we're looking for the symptoms much, you know, are we biased because we know autism is more likely in males? Some people suggest that social withdrawal and passivity, you know, may be interpreted as normal or shyness in girls, whereas it's, you know, unresponsiveness in boys and, and, you know, and so forth. And the same thing with, you know, different uh, ethnic backgrounds, you know, is it, is it that we don't understand their cultural background and, you know, and therefore we, we don't perceive the concerns in the same way? And I think in myself, you know, I've, I've certainly had several patients that it probably took me longer to recognize symptoms in someone who is of a different cultural background. And I, I'm not saying that 
happily, but, but I think that's the reality is we need to recognize that when you're already dealing with a language barrier and you're working through an interpreter, we know that's more difficult. And then, you know, trying to understand their cultural background and what's, what's happening. And, can't, you know, so we need to, if anything, be a little bit more attentive. And that's why it's so important to use a language-specific version of the MCHAT instead of just saying, oh, here's an English one and work through the interpreter or something like that, is to give them every chance they should get to be recognized. And with the MCHAT, presuming that we have a positive screen and or we feel confident, we even you know do some of the follow-up questions and there's at least some concerning findings or a score that uh, raises an eyebrow. The next step, when we refer to evaluation, can you walk us through, well, first, do I tell this family, I'm pretty confident your child has autism because there were, you know, sits fails on the follow-up question? Or do I say, you know, this is a, a positive screen, which warrants, you know, further investigation. And then when we refer, what is, what are they doing? What, you know, sure. does a psychologist go through to, to, to really make this diagnosis? Yeah. So number one, what should you say to the family? Um, obviously going to vary, you know, depending on your relationship with the family, as well as, you know, what your impression is of the child. I mean, you know, when you do one of these screeners, most likely you're not, you know, and if, if it's positive, you're probably not going to stop there. You're going to ask some follow-up questions yourself, talk to them, you know, evaluate the patient yourself, think about any developmental history you've experienced while you've cared for them. But then, you know, if you're pretty concerned, I I think you should, you know, I believe in being honest about, you know, what I'm thinking. And so I normally would say something to the effect of, you know, based on this, this, and this that I'm seeing with your child, I'm concerned that autism may be a possibility. I am not qualified to diagnose that. I, I, and I, I would like you to see someone who is much more expert in this. And, and, to be clear, I'm a primary care physician. I'm not a diagnostic expert in autism. You know, so I do refer these out to someone else. I have a lot of experience caring for patients on the spectrum, but that does not mean I know what I'm doing diagnosing someone, right? You know, and so, and so using those specialists is really important. I'm sure as people listen to this, they're probably thinking, wait a minute, why, why didn't we have a developmental behavioral pediatrician on for this topic? And then, you know, I don't have any disagreement with that statement, I, but I think with the prevalence of autism, it's okay for many people to know about autism. And, you, don't, you know, not everyone has to be a specialist. So back to your question, though, because um, I'm good at tangents. <laughs> <laughs> but back to your question about, you know, what do you do? So have an honest conversation. I'm concerned about this and this and this about your child's development or abilities. I'd like to refer them to a specialist to look into what might be contributing to this and see if there's anything else we need to be doing. And you know, who that specialist is, is going to vary depending on your location and your medical system, maybe through, a, you know, developmental behavioral pediatrician, that may be through a psychologist, maybe through a neurologist or a child psychiatrist, you know, you have to learn what your resources are in your community. The most commonly done tool, you know, most of those people that are expert in diagnosing and are going to use one of two or both commonly used tools, you know, the most commonly used around here is called the ADOS Autism disease, uh, shoot. Autism, <laughs> autism diagnostic observation, yes, observation schedule. Sch- schedule. There you go. Thank you. Thanks I, for I, you know bailing me out not, on that one. That was just off the top of my head, uh, Dr. <laughs> Haynes. Sure. I was ready for Excellent. That. I appreciate yeah, that. That wasn't um, the Google. I'm glad the Google works. We all need it. Um, so, you know, the best evaluations out there are going to be a often a multidisciplinary team with, you know, a physician, a a psychologist or psychiatrist, and maybe, you know, and then they often have kind of trained, you know, people to go through these tools. Because these tools, a lot of it is kind of an interactive experience where they're trying to test for, does this child have shared attention? Meaning if I point at this object, does the child look with me? Does the child make eye contact? Does the child participate in, you know, imaginative play or cooperative play or or does the child, you know, kind of do their own thing? And so, so you know, these evaluations are often not just let's sit in a room and ask you questions. It's it's a more interactive process if done well. So it can have a variety of teams. It should include a good medical and developmental history, family history, a physical exam to look for any sort of features that might suggest some other diagnosis, whether it's a genetic diagnosis or otherwise, and then using one or more of these diagnostic tools that are out there uh, that are well validated. Yeah. And speaking on um, physical exam findings, is there anything specific we should be looking for? And then also, um, as you kind of broach the subject of genetic testing, is it should it be part of every child with um, or even adult or young adult teenager, adolescent, anyone who presents with a diagnosis of autism, should they have a genetics 
um, evaluation and genetic testing. So first of all, you asked about physical exam findings and what we should look for. The reality is in most people, there will not be any specific physical exam findings. Uh, we do know that macrocrania, large head, is present in 25% of those diagnosed with autism. That doesn't mean every child that you have with a large head needs to, you know, diag- you know, to be evaluated for autism. Uh, so, so not really. I mean, you know, obviously if they're having, you know, kind of the typical autism movements of hand flapping, spinning, you know, toe walking, those kind of things, it might bring it to mind. But as far as genetic testing goes, I think we we know that autism is highly heritable. What do I mean by that? It means that many, many cases of autism have an underlying genetic cause. The amount of that continues to, you know, that we are able to identify continues to increase as our genetic technologies have progressed. And so more and more we're finding some underlying you know, gene mutation or something like that that's contributing to autism. That being said, not all patients with autism will be found to have a you know genetic diagnosis. It's more likely to be found if they have intellectual disability, if they have dysmorphic features on exam, if they have a family history of autism or intellectual disability or developmental disability, uh, or if yeah, and if particularly if they have a first degree relative diagnosed with autism, they're much more likely to have a genetic diagnosis. So very clearly, those people should get genetic testing. The rest of the those diagnosed with autism should be offered it, but I think the indication is a little bit less strong. You know, the benefits of genetic testing are, number one, if you can identify a cause, that can sometimes provide us other information about, you know, what else might we expect with this. Um, it can provide information about what's the chance of either another child of that family having autism, or what's the chance of that individual with autism passing on, you know, the, the gene to their progeny. Um, Additionally, there are a number of genes that um, kind of co-locate with risk factors for other conditions. So there are some, for example, P10 gene mutations that also correlate with autism diagnosis. And so that can pose increased cancer risk and requires extra cancer screenings or, you know, increased risk of psychosis with like a 22Q11, you know, mutation or things like that. So I think there's benefit to it and it sure, certainly should be discussed with every person diagnosed. Should it be done for every person it depends on which group group you ask. Um, it's you know not unreasonable. Uh, generally, I would recommend most pediatricians to include either a geneticist or a or a developmental behavioral specialist in that conversation. Just because, well, two reasons: one, this is really complex, and two, uh, most insurances tend to require genetic counseling to get prior authorization for this type of testing because it's somewhat costly. And so, when I've tried, I tried to make it happen in the past with my own patients and, and quickly learned that I, I was better off just asking genetics to be involved. Now, I, I don't want to open up a big can of worms here, but in residency, I remember having um, a child come in with autism and the patient's mother was just beside herself because her sister had told her it was her fault because the child had had vaccines. And my question is, what would be a suitable, like, do you have a way in which, do you get this question often? And do you have like a way you explain it that could be pretty consistent? Like they can be, uh, do you have like script that you can talk to patients about? Um, yeah, so you're right. I mean, is this a can of worms? Yes, but you really can't talk about autism without this coming up at some point. One of the greatest challenges, if we back up in time historically, the increased diagnosis of autism correlates with you know, about 25 to 30 years ago, which was when we had, you know, increased number of vaccines coming in, uh, increased use of, you know, the measles, mumps, rubella vaccine being one of the ones that was implicated, obviously. Uh, and so, so there were concerns. I think, you know, what's the script? I think very clearly at this point, we know based on study after study, large, large studies, that there is no provable link between autism and vaccines. We, you know, and despite the changes that have been done to vaccines based on those concerns, whether it be removing thimerosal from vaccines, whether it be, you know, caution about preservatives, whether it be, you know, some people propose alternate schedules and different things like that of vaccination. We see the rate of autism diagnosis continuing to increase, not decrease, right? So we've made changes to address the presumed concerns and that has not resulted in a, a decrease of diagnosis. So, so I think I think the answer is pretty clear on this. That at this point we have zero evidence that that autism is caused by vaccines. <laughs> I think additionally, yeah. 
you know, now I'm getting into the long spiel and I apologize, but, uh, you know, additionally, you go into this conversation about genetics as we just went into, we are finding more and more and more that we can identify a causative gene, which, which again, speaks to, this isn't because a vaccine was given to a person. This is because something else. Many of these genetic mutations are de novo, you know, so it doesn't necessarily need to be familial and it's highly complex. There's no easy way to have this conversation. I mean, you know, like I, I wish I could tell you a magic thing to say that would make every patient understand and agree. I have not convinced a good number of my patients of this. A lot, you know, as, a, as we talked about, a lot of my patients are in the young adult age range. Many of them were just getting their vaccines when these vaccine study, you know, the, the since refuted vaccine study came out suggesting measles and rubella as a, as a cause. Many of them I find have, you know, had one vaccine, then got their diagnosis, never got their second dose of that, right? And some of them are now coming around and willing to get that, but some of them remain very concerned. And, and you know, I think despite everything you say, you know, fear is a hard thing to overcome. Recognizing that, being respectful of it, and, you know, treating the child as best you can is, is what you should do. Um. Let's keep moving. Shannon, do you want to uh, do a, give us a, a follow-up for our case? Yeah, absolutely. So you see um, our patient, Andres, back at Cashlack Primary Care three months later, and he's been working with early intervention and has had small gains in his language. And he's also had an initial evaluation with developmental peds that are suggestive of him having a diagnosis of autism spectrum disorder. Um, his caregiver now wants to discuss the, di- the diagnosis with you and the implications for their child's future. So would you be able to kind of give us insight into how to counsel on kind of what the expectations are for someone with a diagnosis of autism? Sure. Now, hopefully anyone in the circumstances who has been diagnosed by, by a developmental pediatrician or whoever did that diagnosis was provided a lot of this information already. Anyone that's doing a good job with a diagnostic evaluation should also then have a follow-up conversation of this is what this means and this is what we recommend you know, at this point. And that is what I generally see. So I, I expect that's the case in most places. That being said, I think number one, it's important to recognize going back to the definition of autism. This is a biologically driven condition. So there's no cure for autism. We, we, you know, if you get on the internet, you're going to read about a million different cures for autism. We have no cure. And, and I think it's important to recognize that, that, that we are not trying to fix autism. We can't change autism in most cases. Autism is there, but we can make a big difference for these individuals. And, and so how do we do that? Number one is as I said early on in this conversation, acceptance and accommodation are really important. And that begins, you know, from the moment they're diagnosed, recognizing they need some accommodations, whether that's in school, whether that's in their daycare or preschool setting, whether that's in their home or medical environments or whatever it may be. What do they need to make things work better for them? Number two, many individuals can learn skills that will help them function better within their environment, right? So we should provide them every opportunity to succeed in the environment we have. We should continue to try and change our env- the environment for them, but can we help them? And so this has to be individualized. The most commonly used method for you know treatment of autism, and I'm going to use the word treatment of autism, even though I, I squirm a little bit with that terminology personally, is called Applied Behavioral Analysis, or ABA. ABA is a time-intensive therapy program focused on modifying behaviors using kind of you know reinforcement techniques, essentially identifying what's causing a behavior and what happens from it, and how do we modify that? Can we, you know, as an example, and I'm going to give an example that, well, I'm going to give an example. One example would be, all right, you've got an individual on the autism spectrum who is not good at eye contact. You want to teach them how to look someone in the eye when they introduce themselves. How are you going to, you know, so you recognize, all right, in this moment, they're going to have this experience. How do I incentivize them to learn to do that and teach them over time? And this takes repetition and reward systems and things like that. Now, I use that scenario with hesitation because there are those that are, you know, autism advocates and in the autism community that will say that this is the wrong approach. And I'm not here to tell them they're right, right or wrong, you know, because, you know, the concept, the reason they'll say this is the wrong approach is we're trying to train the autism out of them. We're trying to force them to do something that's not comfortable for them. Um, and has that been taken too far in some circumstances? Absolutely. You know, and so recognizing that ABA is generally the standard of care and is most often recommended by, you know, our developmental pediatricians or autism specialists in the pediatric community. 
Um, and it has very good evidence for improving some of these skills and improving the abilities and decreasing problem behaviors and things like that. But there are also those that will say, but now you're trying to make me someone I'm not. Um, and, and a lot of that conversations come, comes from those that are more self-advocates and more able to communicate on their own and so forth. And so this, is, this is really blurry. But it should be offered or at least discussed. It's a time-intensive thing. Often we're talking 25 to 40 hours a week. It can be done through some specialized school systems or through, you know, their specialists and special programs that do this kind of thing. So, so that's treatment number one, right? Re and, and going back to what I said before, the reality is every patient, you know, we should individualize and look at, all right, they're having speech difficulty. We should get a speech therapist involved. Well, what if they have essentially no verbal language. Well, then we should get a speech therapist involved to work on tools to help them communicate in nonverbal ways. And that can be picture-based systems or, or, you know, a program on their tablet that can touch on things and create speech. Or maybe they can, you know, some of my patients type or write quite well, but don't speak a word to me. That's okay, you know. And so so facilitating their skills there should happen. Yeah, I, I could go on for an hour on this topic alone. <laughs> no, I, I think it's I think it's great to to talk about standard of care and to your point, not necessarily uh, specifying this treatment, but of providing some of these uh, accommodations or, or trying to make their behavior socially acceptable, whether that's the correct path or not. But I would love to, you know, ask the complications to look for as a provider or as a parent. Because I will say, you know, anecdotally, I've seen patients, like the most severe constipation I've ever seen is always in a patient with autism. And I don't know if that is, I admit, I'm not entirely sure. I, I don't know if that's like a, a sensory sensitivity, a sensitivity thing for textures of foods. Um, but I know that is also something that parents struggle with. And providers. can you talk about what are some of the complications that... Um, yes can be expected and, and maybe some accommodations that are often done. Yeah. So uh, we'll start with GI stuff since you brought up the constipation. You're right. We do see a lot of GI challenges in individuals on the spectrum. Uh, constipation is probably your most common one. Uh, there's probably multiple contributors to that. Many individuals on the spectrum have very selective diets. You know, they only eat certain foods in certain ways. And obviously that's not conducive to, you know, good bowel movements in many cases. Um, there are likely other contributors. Obviously, there's a lot of research right now into the microbiome, gut microbiome and you know interactions with the rest of the body. And I really don't think the science has caught up with our desire for what it will catch up to there. So, so I'm not going to spend a lot of time on that right now, other than recognizing that there's a lot of people that think that could play in, but we really don't understand it. Other things outside of, you know, but, you know, and so if they're having GI issues, treating them as you would anyone else, you know, we, I think any pediatrician sees a lot of constipation these days. There's no reason to think we should treat this population any differently for that. Um, other things that are really common in autism, epilepsy has a prevalence rate of over 12%, um, as opposed to about 1% in the general population. Um, so, so watching for seizures um, is very important. That, that increases as they get older into adolescence and young adulthood, and so being aware of that. The challenge when we talk about this is when you look at study after study after study, if you name a medical condition, it's more common in autism than the general population. You could pick anything, adult or child condition, it's probably more common. And, and I think there's a lot of reasons for that. Obviously, physiologically, there are some things, you know, when you look at epilepsy, there's probably some brain formation stuff when we look at the details or, you know, that, that contribute to that. But when you start talking about you know, anxiety, depression, you know, in adults, we see hypertension, diabetes more and things like that. A lot of that is probably socially driven because this is a population that is more likely to be put in situations where they're less active, more likely to be underemployed when they're older, more likely to be excluded from opportunities, and therefore in situations where they might develop these things. That being said, I should talk about mental health stuff for a minute with this population because Mental health conditions are super common. Anxiety, depression, ADHD. There are even studies suggesting higher rates of schizophrenia and catatonia and some of the more rare psychiatric conditions we don't think about as much as primary care doctors. Super common, all of these. ADHD and anxiety particularly, especially in the pediatric population, you'll see a lot of that. I think this is particularly important because there's good evidence that mortality risk is higher in the autism population. And that's largely driven by epilepsy, episode, you know, seizure episodes causing death, and suicide episodes, more in adolescents than adults, but, you know, in all ages, and then in kids drowning. And so recognizing that, you know, we should be 
talking about those kind of things with parents to say, one, let's, you know, you don't want to raise too much concern, but, you know, if you see things that look like seizures, we want to talk about it now, not ignore it. And really, you know, using the screening tools we would use for any pediatric patient to think about anxiety, depression type stuff to, to, and explore that as well as you can, because that's a big risk for kids. Maybe as as I said, we're in the, on the mental health um, medications for uh, mental health or you know psychotropic medications. Chris and I love to throw medicines at people. Uh, you know what medicine uh, uh, are there? Medications that that support any of the um, for patients with autism? Sure. So um, I think yes. <laughs> uh, how do I go into this? Number one, before we talk about psychotropic medications, which I think is an important conversation here, it's important to recognize that a individual with autism, whatever age they may be, that shows up with new behavioral problems, you know, does not necessarily mean they have a mental health condition, right? If they're not able to communicate well, or if they're not able to understand what they're experiencing, they may be having pain, they may be having you know, disruption of their, their family or their, you know, social supports and all those things can lead to things. And so before we even think about medicines, we should think about, all right, is there a reason for pain? Do they have dental problems? Do they have GI problems? Do they have constipation? Do they have an infection? Are they having headaches? How do you find out if someone's having headaches if they can't talk to you? That's really hard. Um, you know, are they having allergies? Do they have an injury? Are they having seizures? Seizures is actually when, when you look at studies of, you know, people having severe behaviors that are on the autism spectrum, a certain subpopulation of them are actually having seizures that are driving those behaviors. You know, so, so thinking about these things, are they having menstrual, dis, you know, dysregulation or, or menstrual pain or something? Is their sleep, you know, cycle not good? So all these things need to be thought about before we even think about, should I put this person on a psychotropic medicine? And the reason I spend so much time on that is because we as medical providers are really good at throwing medicines at people. We are. And, um, and I'm guilty of this as much as anybody is, but someone comes in and they've got a problem and it's way easier to give them a pill than it is to spend all the time it is to figure that other stuff out. Um, and so with that long caveat, uh, medicines. So there are two FDA-indicated medicines for treatment of behavioral disru- you know, disruptive behavior in autism. And these are uh, aripiprazole and risperidol which are both atypical antipsychotics. Uh, they've been studied uh, in pediatric populations. Actually, this is one of the rare situations where pediatric data is better than adult data. Um, it's always nice when that happens. <laughs> <laughs> and so there is evidence that using those medicines can decrease problem behaviors. But anyone that knows anything about those medicines knows they come with a bucket of side effects that we don't like, you know, with weight gain, you know, sedation, extrapyramidal side effects, disruption of, you know, metabolic stuff, you know, increased lipids, increased blood sugar, a lot of problems. So, so not a great medicine to give to a, you know, five-year-old that might be on this for the next multiple decades. And so they should reserve for situations where one, you can't identify a other cause and two, you know, they're being managed by someone who has experience with this and, and knows what to do with it. Those are the only two with an FDA indication specific to autism. That does not mean other psychotropic medicines are not used, right? So if you can clearly define someone with you know, on the autism spectrum as having anxiety or depression, aripiprazole or risperidone should not be your first choice, right? It should be standard of care, which is probably an SSRI or something like that. And so not only should we be looking for physical causes, but we should be looking for a diagnosable mental health cause before we just say, oh, let's throw the big Band-Aid of an atypical antipsychotic at it. And that's where if you don't feel comfortable with this, you should absolutely be getting a psychiatrist, a behavioral development pediatrician, someone else involved, um, because this is hard, you know, I mean, and especially when the patient is not able to communicate in the way you're used to, but even if they are, this is hard. You know, you think about how hard it is for us to diagnose anxiety and depression in a, you know, young pediatric patient. It's not easy. So, 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 so the, the, that's the depth I would like to go into on uh, medicines. So moving from maybe prescribed medications to maybe something a little gentler. So are there any specific like 
over-the-counter supplements, diet modifications. Sure. I know there's a lot of discussion about like keto diet. Like, mm-hmm. uh, do we have any evidence in making some of these outside of like making sure they're obviously trying to eat healthy to, right. you know, make sure that they, they're healthy in other ways? Yeah. So um, let me talk about diet first. So as I already mentioned, we frequently see patients on the spectrum having very narrow diets. Not all of them. I have plenty of patients that have a really nice broad diet that do a great job. But but recognizing that many of them do just have, you know, either it's texture related or it's color or smell or whatever drives it. And so thinking about the nutrition is important, right? And looking at their diet and saying, wow, you really are not getting a broad variety of nutrients. Maybe this is someone that should be on, you know, I'm not a big believer in multivitamins and supplements, but there are times that you could look at someone and say, wow, you probably are not getting a lot of the vitamins through your diet. Maybe we should consider adding some of those things here within reason, right? That being said, there are a lot of thoughts and ideas out there about using different diets to treat autism symptoms in one way or another. Particularly the most commonly discussed ones are gluten-free and casein-free diets, uh, casein casein being dairy protein, right? Of the studies that have been done, none have shown, of the well-controlled studies that have been done, none have shown any positive benefit of those diet changes. Do I have patients that are doing it? Yes. Do I have a few patients that have said to me, hey, I think things are better on it? Yes. As long as they're eating healthy, I don't care if they're eating gluten or not. It doesn't matter to me. Um, but but recognizing that in general, am I recommending people to make dietary changes to improve something related to autism? No. Um, other supplements, there's a million ideas about different supplements, uh, just like in every other you know condition and population that we treat. None of them have great data. There's some really fascinating small studies on a few things that I, I are too not ready for prime time to talk about at this point. Um, the other one I get asked about a lot uh, that I'm going to bring up specifically is medical marijuana, because obviously it's a big movement in the country and in the world right now, and a lot of people are looking to it to treat. Um, so is there evidence for use of medical marijuana in autism? Not yet. Um, The best study I have seen was published three or four years ago out of a group in Israel, and they did a non-controlled, unblinded study looking at uh, something like 40 patients on the autism spectrum that they gave medical marijuana for with trying to treat severe behavioral outbursts and things like that. And there was a positive effect of those that were on medical marijuana, uh, but it was around in that 30 to 40 percent positive effect range that you could conceivably say that could be placebo or not, you know, and so they report they're going to follow up with placebo-controlled trials, which I think will be interesting to see what happens with, uh, but we are far from having any evidence to support that. Additionally, you know, anytime you talk about medical marijuana use, obviously you have to think about the, the negative effects, which is probably another talk, but um, but not ready for prime time. Very cool. And other things that might help uh, parents in term of, or caregivers in term of supporting their child, any apps or resources or other things that can be helpful interventions? Yeah. So number one, um, again, going back to what I keep bringing up, I, I, they're, uh, showing love and acceptance to your child is so important, regardless of their abilities, right? And so there are actually studies out there showing that parents that kind of accept the diagnosis and accept what their child can do and work with it they're happier and the child is happier long-term than, than those that really focus on fixing or changing their child. That being said, you know, we all as parents, I mean, I, I know multiple of you are parents and I am too, you know, we all want to make our children better, right? And we all try and help our children do better. And of course you should try and help your children do better. So, so there's a balance there. There's very clear evidence that parent training courses, you know, specific to how to work with your child on the spectrum are very effective at improving behavior for the children and decreasing stress for the child and the parent. And so those are available in a variety of different sources. I can't name a specific app or anything like that, but if you go to, you know, I mean, first of all, the person that performs the diagnostic evaluation should hopefully be able to, you know, provide resources to that type of connection. But, you know, if you have an autism center near you, or if you don't, looking at, you know, looking online, you can find these kind of trainings. And there's very good evidence that that parent training can benefit the parent and the child long term. Uh, so that's the one thing I would highlight there. 
So we're getting close to sort of wrapping up our discussion with you. And I really want to thank you for giving us this time this evening to be able to talk to us about this. Is there anything else that you want our listeners to know about autism and our patients with autism spectrum disorder that you really think they need to know before we uh, get down to our take home points? Um, I think there's a two more things, maybe two, maybe three things I want to talk about really quickly. <laughs> Number one is something I forgot to mention when we were talking about kind of the language and, and defining autism. Um, frequently in our uh, society, you'll hear people referred to as high-functioning autism or low-functioning autism or things like that. I think we need to be really careful with that diagnosis or, or that definition. The reality is a person may be very capable at speaking and not very capable at you know processing information or maybe very intelligent, but may not have verbal language. And so defining someone as high functioning is way too broad of a term to use equally so with low functioning. So be very cautious with those terms. I know that makes it really hard to talk about a person, right? You know, how do I define this patient in a way that people can understand quickly, you know, but using, using language that's as most specific to that person as possible. You know, I've got a five-year-old patient with autism who has very limited expressive language ability and has a lot of severe behaviors is true, you know, but doesn't define him as high or low functioning. He could be either one of those in different aspects. So that's number one, just to follow up with that. And the if you look at the diagnostic criteria for autism, they then, they, they do break down into different levels of how much support they require, requiring support, requiring substantial support, or requiring very substantial support, which is kind of how they have broken it down into ways of saying how, how affected by autism is this individual. But those levels can change and evolve over time and, you know, with changes in life. So, um, so that's one thing. The next thing, um, was, I'm trying to remember what it was. I had a few things in my head. We're talking to a pediatric audience here. Pediatricians, you know, as mentioned, I work a lot in the transition end of the world. And pediatricians are generally still providing care for a patient on the spectrum when they're approaching age of 18. And legally, a lot of stuff happens when you turn 18. And so often these conversations should be happening before they're moved on to an adult provider of, does this individual need some other support set up before they turn 18? Meaning, are they going to continue to be, are, once they turn 18, legally, unless something's done, they are their own guardian, right? Whether they have intellectual disability, severe developmental disabilities, or whether they're perfectly capable of managing their entire life, they are by definition their own guardians, which means that technically the parent is not allowed in the room without the, the, the patient's, you know, permission. The parent can't call the doctor's office and get information, etc. And so this conversation needs to be had before they turn 18 to say, what does your child need going forward? And that does not mean every child with autism needs to have a legal guardian assigned. Very clearly not. But do they need to sign power of attorney forms? Do they need to pursue guardianship? What, what should be happening there, I think is really important. Number two is um, anyone with a significant developmental disability, uh, autism or otherwise, qualifies for special education services. And that provides a massive amount of wraparound supports for them. You know, through the school, they often are getting variety of therapies. They're getting transition planning supports and all sorts of stuff. Um, They age out of that by age 22. Some choose to age out sooner, but by age 22, they're going to age out. And, you know, so starting to think about that future well in advance of when they get to that point to, to say, what's what's the future going to be? Is it, are you pursuing education? Are you pursuing employment? Are you pursuing a you know day rehab program? And what do we need to plan for that? Um, I think are conversations that should start in the pediatric age range. Some of those may not be finished at that time, and that's fine. Um, and then, so, so l- l- let me just jump on. So I've kind of alluded to the idea of accommodations for patients a few times. Let me hit on that real quick, just briefly. So especially as people progress in age and they have more and more experiences in healthcare, it becomes pretty obvious what they do and don't tolerate, right? You know, and we've all walked in, I suspect many of you, as I have, have walked into a room with a patient who either for one reason or other is behaviorally not willing to let me do what I wish I could do in that office. You know, whether that's examine the patient, whether that's give them a vaccine, whether that's, you know, talk to them. What can we do to make this better? I think Number one is understanding the patient as an individual and recognizing what are their triggers. And often that means talking to the parents and saying, hey, what works and what doesn't? Do they, you know, does sitting in that waiting room with 20 other kids crying cause them problems and make this really difficult? 
okay, well, what can we do? Do you want to be the first appointment of the day next time? Or do you want to, you know, can we skip the waiting room and just stick you in a room? Or, or what is that process? Every office can find a way to accommodate for this, right? Or, you know, man, Jimmy really hates that blood pressure, you know, cuff. That squeeze just sets him off. All right, well, I do need to check his blood pressure occasionally, but can I put that to the end of the visit, you know, so that I can do all these other things first? A lot of these simple things can make a big difference for, for this population in the right setting where they may do much better for you. They'll develop comfort over time. They'll learn your process. They'll get better. Yeah. So, so and, and that applies to the more difficult stuff. What if they really, really, really fight against a vaccine? Well, how are you going to get them there? In our office, we've had reasonable success with developing a video that they can watch online that goes through the whole process and then actually sending them home with everything but the needle, right? Like, you know, whether it's a venipuncture or a vaccine, Send them home with everything to practice with. Get used to alcohol wipe, something pokes your arm. You know, do that over and over again. If they have an ABA therapist that's working with them, get them involved and say, hey, can we work on these skills? Uh, these are ways you can develop abilities for your patients so that you can succeed in the long run. This is not quick. This isn't something you're going to do once and that's going to be fixed. But but if, if you're taking care of a child that's diagnosed at three or four or five, you've got a decade or more to work with them on some of these things. Um, start now. I think that that was like the best wrap up that we probably could do. <laughs> no, I think Shannon, were you going to end up anything? That was awesome. Great. I think um, any maybe one last question that we always try to ask: Is there anything that you would like to plug, or that we could send our listeners to? Um, <sighs> Your Instagram and page. Not, <laughs> uh, we, no, I mean, as, you know, uh, uh, I mean, I guess you know, if if we want to be selfish and plug stuff, you know, yeah. Um, my, my our website, I can give you the information. So if you were to go to that website, on it there are a variety of videos we've developed and tools, kind of talking through some of that stuff and and, and discussion of how we approach patients for complicated procedures. It's got, and so you know, this was developed towards adults, but it's very easy to. Apply to Perfect. And what's what's know. the website? Can you say the website again? Go.osu.edu forward slash cast, C-A-S-T. Beautiful. Um, and, you know, that's that's my program's website. Um, it's not a beautiful website. I am not a web designer. Uh, <laughs> but it has some, a yeah, few Yeah, we'll make sure that's in the, 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 the show notes. Help people. We'll make sure that's there. Awesome. I think this is great. I feel like this was a great overview of some of the black box of what happens for diagnosis and treatment and some great tips for, I think, both parents and caregivers, uh, caregivers and providers of how to make some of these accommodations and also just a lot of the kind of complex social components behind the diagnosis. So uh, wonderful episode. Chris, thank you so much for joining us. Chris, thank you much, so much for bringing Chris on. I think, Chris, that was a really great no pick. And Chris, it's just been it's been great having you. So, uh, all, all Thanks, Chris Justin. I'm not sure I should say your name. It feels like I should just say Chris at this point. But. Yeah, it's all Chris. It's, it's the Chris show. Um, but thank you for joining us, and, and we really appreciate your time. Oh, thank you. I appreciate it. This has been another episode of The Cribsiders. It's for the kids. Get show notes and sign up for our weekly Knowledge Food Formula Feeds newsletter on our website at www.thecribsiders.com. We are committed to providing you with high-value practice changing knowledge, and to do that, we need your feedback. So please subscribe, rate, review the show on Apple Podcasts. It means a ton. You can also contact us at thecribsiders at gmail.com. A special thanks to our producers for this episode, Sydney Engel and Dr. Shannon Snellgrove, our showrunner, Dr. Sam Mazur, and our wonderful social media team. Thank you for joining us. I've been Justin Lee Burke. I've been Sydney Engel. I've been Shannon Snellgrove. And this has been Chris, the Chi Man Chu. Thank you. Good night. Hey, you've already listened to the entire episode. Now claim CME credit. Continuing education credit is provided by VCU Healthcare Continuing Education. VCU is accredited to provide continuing education to the entire healthcare team. Check it out at cribsiders.vcuhealth.org for more information and to claim your credit after listening to this episode.